Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. On today's episode, Tommy and I sit down for a chat about app privacy. When we reflect on our daily lives, there's perhaps no single tool that is more pervasive in society than the smartphone. Smartphones certainly make life much easier for many, but they're also repositories for a whole bunch of personal information. Our phones are now littered with applications, and many of those applications store and use personal data. So it's certainly important to reflect on the ways in which that data is collected, shared, and in some cases, sold. So I hope today's discussion really resonates with you. So sit back, grab your iPhone or your Android, and enjoy the episode. So what do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about our radio show that we did last week. At yeah. a, I don't mean like a podcast show. I meant the thing we did with Mike Stubbs mm-hmm. on Global News Radio. All right. And what did we do? I don't know. What did we do? I don't remember. We kind of chatted. We chatted about app privacy and um, privacy settings in applications and how uh, people tend to not want to read them and see them and... Um, yes. Figure them okay. out and, and kind of deconstruct them for their own usage of, say, Pokemon Go or <laughs> You've jogged Facebook, my Instagram, yep. Twitter, and all those things. So this was created by Mike Stubbs wanting a response to a paper he read that was published out of the Computer Engineering Department at the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. authored by Dr. David Lee. Mm-hmm. And that paper concluded that over 60% of the thousand apps he looked at were sharing data that was not covered in the privacy policy. I don't think that he was arguing that it's user's fault, Mm -hmm. but I think what he was advocating for is to break devices open and have a look at what's going on inside, which is really interesting for a lot of reasons. But the one I'm most interested in, Derek, is how that argument rubs up against the majority of sentiments in the industry and in the academy that argue users don't care about their privacy. Do you you think users care? Yeah, disproportionately. I think the argument and the discourse about how and whether users care is so disproportionately one-sided that it's kind of ludicrous. There's people out there who vehemently believe that people just flip through the terms of use agreement because they couldn't be bothered mm. and they don't actually care about their privacy. I think that's a knee-jerk reaction. You think so? Yeah. Ah, that's interesting. Because I don't think there's been a lot of critical thought that's gone mm. into this. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking of my own usage of a variety of apps and I'm thinking like, I kind of just flip through. Yeah, but you're you. Service. You're you. You were an apple wristwatch yeah that's right i am wearing an apple well you sit in front of your giant apple and your other app, giant apple <laughs> lots of apple things i trust apple a lot apparently um but like i i kind of just flip through so if there's one of me don't you think there's thousands of me potentially but you're still mm-hmm. generalizing you also yeah, have to course, keep in yeah. mind that you're one of the very few people i've ever read in my life that has done a freedom of information request at least once <laughs> If you didn't care about your privacy, you wouldn't have done that. And I also think that you could consider exploring reflexively Mm -hmm. 
whether or not you're okay with going with the flow and letting the data flow so that you can experience these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, one way we could we could think about this is that the cusp of research, of sociological research into privacy and surveillance is filled with, you know, people younger than us now yeah. who are voluntarily putting themselves on Facebook and voluntarily buying Android devices because they're arguing that unless you're experiencing it, you can't critique it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these people aren't keeping track and records of how their data is being moved around. Like we haven't even really had that conversation yet. I mean, arguably this podcast is the place to start doing that. Yeah. But otherwise, how many people have you sat down with to research surveillance data and privacy and have actually had a conversation with them about like the things that they do on a daily basis to monitor and act upon their data? Yeah. Is Are there any research projects that have done that? Like interviewed different people there are snippets of them yeah so there's a few that come to mind i'll mention a couple really briefly yeah the one that really captivated me this summer while i was away was conducted by a researcher named paul gabba Mm. who finished his phd last year 2017 in psychology and he's a computer programmer and his dissertation had a chapter that was dedicated to discussing the merits of end users of smartphone devices seeing their data. Now, after I had a conversation with him over email, he said, it doesn't matter at the end of the day because users are not technically literate enough to do anything about that data. And Mm -hmm. I pushed back on him and I said, what was the experience like? What was the moment like when people saw data in their phone in real time? Because this is something he did, right? He used tools to show data moving around in the smartphones. And the reaction was shock and awe. There is no theorizing on that moment of shock and awe. And I think that's where we start a different discourse or create an interventionist discursive shift that moves towards the value or the utility of being freaked out when you see massive amounts of data about yourself and whether or not that makes you want to take more control, whether or not that makes you want to spend more time in your settings or make you ask more questions on Google. Mm. So I'm so I'm I'm struggling a little bit here with your claim that people really care about privacy in their day-to-day usage. And what I'm gathering from this discussion is that maybe when people are reminded about issues of privacy, they care. Or when they see issues of privacy, they care a lot. And I think like the Cambridge Analytica stuff and Mm -hmm. the Snowden stuff highlights that. Like we care a lot when we hear about these things. But I'm not sure if people care enough to when they're actually using their phone day to day to want to do anything about it. I think they only care or maybe one time that they only care is when they hear about how their data has been breached or when they see how their data moves. But we don't see. And we're, we're not going to see data moving on a mass scale in the near future. So why do we care? When I was in grade eight, <clears throat> one of my favorite classes was a science and technology lab, right? We went into this room and we learned how to make little cars with CO2 canisters in them. You'd fire down the hallway and rip into Bobby's foot and break it wide open and make him cry. We did things, yeah, very. We, we had projects where we melted 
pieces of like sheets of plastic and molded them into UFOs. And then we drilled holes out and stuck LEDs inside to make it look like a UFO. And we'd hang them, mm-hmm. you know, like in my parents' kitchen. And something else that we did was played a lot of video games. And this is one video game that I loved playing inside of that lab. And it was, I think it was called Street Rod. Did you ever play that game? No. DOS game, Street Rod? No. Well, they just lost a point on our friendship score. (laughs) Down to negative 26. (laughs) That low? Well, that's impressive. We'll have to have more beer and talk about that later. (laughs) But Street Rod was really captivating to me because it, it showed me a world about cars, car culture that I was totally unfamiliar with. I didn't care about cars then. Mm-hmm. I was interested in music mm-hmm. and, vi- and other video games, right? So what this game allowed me to do was uh, start off with an empty garage, pick up a virtual newspaper off of a bench, skim through the newspaper and buy a used car. You get the used car. It's like a 1956 Chevy POS and you can open up the hood and into the hood there was like a virtual engine. I know nothing about engines, Derek but I could take the alternator off once I figured out what the heck that thing was, just determined it was broken, buy a new one from the newspaper, look at the different types of alternators that would fit with the car, take the manifold off, take the exhaust off, take the transmission out, look at the flywheel, look at the the drivetrain. And I learned about an engine. May not have been a comprehensive understanding, but my point is that the technology in the video game was a heuristic experience for me. It showed me a conceptual avenue through which I could learn about a car. How do people do the same thing for data flows on their phone? Mm -hmm. There isn't one. And you hypothesize that by showing people those flows, this sort of implicit caring for their privacy that we see manifest in things like Cambridge Analytica and our responses to will become sort of a, uh, uh, a common thing. This is the heart of so many scholars inside of the sociology of technology Mm. and STS. And sorry, by STS, I mean science, technology, and society or science and technology studies. It it depends who you talk to, really. But the study of the relationship between science, technology, and society, Mm. science, technology, and democracy is filled with logics and arguments that demonstrate that because technologists and because lab technicians and because scientists do work behind closed doors because they play an intimate role in giving us black box technologies society never learns Mm -hmm. it's not that people aren't willing and capable to pick up a technical textbook and gain entry the point is is that the entry points are politicized Mm -hmm. it's not easy to go and just do that because we don't have video games to encourage us we don't have popular cultural artifacts and experiences that gain us the entry points in order to break down some of these walls. I mean, is this not exactly an argument or representation of the ivory tower, ivory tower problem in the academy? Mm. There are ways for people to learn without getting a PhD. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if we find a way to start mapping out how data moves, as we talked about in our last podcast, people are going to start asking hard questions that are going to challenge corporations when they say things like, well, we design privacy for you. We care about differential privacy. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We've got you. Mm-hmm. These are the same corporations that have been routinely getting in trouble for the last 15 years. It has to change at some point. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I, I would hope so too. And do you think like these, we touched on this very briefly last week and I want to return to it only because I'm really, I guess a, I, I'm not going to say a conspiracy theorist, but someone who 
is interested in Big Brother, if if you will. And one of the things is, like, do you think these companies are having these discussions behind the scenes and actively distracting people to not want to care about their their privacy? And I'm I'm thinking of companies like Facebook, like. Do you think there's a, a group of senior executives that are sitting around a table and saying like Cambridge Analytica really fucked us guys, really messed us up. We have to make sure this doesn't happen again. And here's how we're going to do it. You know what I mean? For sure. Do you think those things are happening or can you even like speak to that or? I, I can't speak to it directly. I wouldn't be surprised if those things are happening. I think it was Hales who said uh, print is flat, code is deep. Hmm. Why why bother distributing devices that have people spending time tinkering and hacking, breaking things open and exploring when you can just give them something that's waterproof sealed that never needs to be opened, only to be adjudicated and repaired by an expert in a shop behind a what do they call those counters at the Apple the gen- store? Genius bar. I want, <laughs> the I want, genius the, I bar. want the listener to know that as Tommy was just saying that he was looking from my eyes, his eyes were moving from my eyes to my Apple watch. I wear an Apple watch and my <laughs> Apple phone that. sitting on the table, like nonstop. Did you feel like I was judging you? I did. I, I felt like you were judging me, but like, well, I th- did judge you. This <laughs> good. This is minus 29 points. So I was, so Apple just released this past week their new iPhones, Ter- ter- like absolutely terrible names. Um, so they, they've got new iPhones, the XS and the XS match or whatever, the tennis match. So like the tennis <laughs> match, the iPhone tennis match. Is, mash? Why mash? Yeah. No, it's, uh, no, it's max. Oh, max. But the, like the, the running joke is that it's the iPhone tennis match. Like that's what it sounds like. The 10 X max sounds like tennis match. So people are on the, you know, the internet is a funny, funny, funny place. <laughs> they say the iPhone tennis match. But what <laughs> my point where I was going with this is that they didn't really do much to the phone, to the internals of the phone. It's like 15% faster. And Apple really loves to throw out these these quantifi- quantifications of their processor speed. Every year it's like 120% faster, 600,000% uh, mm-hmm. faster, mm-hmm. but this year it was 15%. But what's happened is they've sort of changed the infrastructure of the phone to be able to deal with machine learning much more efficiently and AR stuff and all this other things, all these other things that are like important to app developers so that the apps can start running more efficiently. Not, of course. not just the phone. We've moved beyond just the phone needs to be faster. This phone is fast. Even my couple year old phone is super fast. I don't need it to be any faster. Do you have the newest operating system on that phone? Uh, I guess not now because I think they just released iOS 12 and I'm still on iOS 11. And what points. phone is that? This is an iPhone 8. Okay, do me a favor and go to your it's iPhone s- 7. Let I me think. see your home screen. Do you have like six rows of four icons? I've got four icons, six rows, yeah. You know why I asked six by four? Why? It's been the same bloody layout since their first Yeah. Yeah. since their first phone. Six by four has yeah. never changed. And well, how many, actually, how many no, icons it did. You- it, did it, it used to be... Um, it used to be four, five by four, and they add an extra row when oh, you get the bigger oh, number. Oh, excuse me, yeah, no, Doctor Silva. It was six if you include the home at the bottom, but now it's seven. 
So yeah, it's seven by four. So I guess it it, it enlarges if you have if you a have the bigger phone. stupid screen because it would make no sense. Okay, so then on like my mom's smaller iPhone, it's six by four. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're right; it hasn't changed. Okay, so here's here's the point that I'm getting at. Yeah. Every iteration of iOS, aesthetically speaking, from a visual perspective, mm-hmm. has never changed. Yeah. Ever since the first iPhone came out. Yeah. Apple has taken a lot of criticism from different journalists, tech experts, even academics for doing this. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you very simply, why do you think they do that? Why keep it the same? Why release a slightly different product that costs exponentially more money every year mm-hmm. and have the exact same user interface for 15 years? Why would they do that? Because... They want you to use the phone the way they intend, the way their engineers intend. And, and what, what is the intention? What, what does Apple want from their user? They want, to, they want their user to add apps and spend money on those apps. Excellent. You're falling right into my trap. This is exactly what I wanted to hear from you. I love you. We just gained four more points on our friendship (laughs) scale. So we're now from minus 29 to minus 25. The reason why I'm drilling away at this is because of precisely what you mentioned. Apple generates a tremendous amount of revenue by charging 33% of any app sale on the app store. Mm -hmm. They do not get a cut of micro purchases in apps. Yeah. But that is exactly how their marketplace survives. That's yeah. why so many of those applications are so profitable. Yeah. That's why you see the same kind of game yeah, same with developers. a slightly different presentation yeah. coming out all of the time. Yeah. It's Christmas. Let's put some Christmas hats on elves that fight each other around dungeons and moats. I love I, I keep going to Pokemon Go. I, it's just it's such a funny Hey, well if that's your thing, that's your thing. That's I also cool. play the game. I played it for uh, a bit too. It's it's kind of fun. It's interesting. What's the best Pokemon you ever catched? Uh, Cod. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh well like in Pokemon Go, it really doesn't matter what, what Pokemon you get, but like I've caught a bunch of rare, you know, rare things like Dragonite and Tyranitar and then some Mewtwo. I got Mewtwo. You got Mewtwo. Yeah. But that's a whole nother story. That's like a cat from another universe. Those are micro purchases because they force you to buy. Oh boy. Uh, like these raid passes to, to uh, it's a long story. Well, the, the point is, is that with all of these things that suck you in, Mm-hmm. Apple continues to benefit because there's a huge incentive for application developers to continue producing products. Throughout the summer, I spent quite a bit of time looking at Apple's application development toolkit. And they have like six design principles. And what they all tell is the same narrative, the same story. We want you to make your application look good on our device. And we want it to to feel and respond like the operating system. Mm And the first thing that an application developer does when they're on the application development toolkit is build the user-facing interface first. They don't build the code first. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like carriage before horse thing in a big way. You focus your time on building something that's visually fun. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they focus on is feedback. Make sure that if there's a loading screen or there's a waiting time, that as the user gives input, the input is validated. Use icons this size, this dimension, and this frequency so it feels like our operating system and you will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. 
the point that I'm trying to make with the simplicity of design, the point I'm trying to make about the six by four columns and the icon format and the fact that it's never changed, man, is that Apple wants people to experience ease of access. They want it to be quick and they want it to be recursive yeah. because as users are continuously engaged in applications that are easily accessible and easy to navigate over 15 years of operating systems is that they're just going to spend more time on their smartphone. And this has been studied. Yeah. Apple produces disproportionately more revenue on its application marketplace over Android. The numbers are actually quite a dramatic difference. Yeah. And there's more Android devices devices being used right now than than smart than than Apple smartphones. Apple wants people to pick up something, mm -hmm. even though it's a new technology and know exactly where to go. Yeah. And because it's easy to transfer accounts device, device, device people can just get involved. And as long as people's thumbs are touching the screen, they're producing metadata. Mm -hmm. They're producing coordinate data. They're making the sensors trigger data creation phenomena. There are events where, where literally numerical data is being generated every time you just move your phone. Even if you're walking down the street mm -hmm. without physically looking at it, it's recording. Mm -hmm. The operating system is designed to give that data to applications once they request it. Yeah. So there's an entire world of data movement and data creation, and data analysis, and data widespread circulation beyond the phone that people never see. Yeah. If I want to figure out how gasoline flows through my car, I can go on Street Rod and figure that out. But I don't know any five computer engineers that I could put into a room right now, even after talking to them for four years, to figure this out. So what happens? Figuring it out what then? happens if we get those people together? And they develop a heuristic technology like a video or mm -hmm. a game that allows people to start exploring how much data is moving about them all the time and how much of that data is being interpreted to sell them like hair growth pills because Apple assumes that you have cancer. Mm. So you asked me who is doing this. I don't know. Apparently, according to Dr. David Lee, there's five to ten groups in the world that are working on separate tools that can do this, but I don't know who they are. He didn't tell me. I asked and... Top I got the cold info. shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is it's just it's just fascinating because yeah, we know the story of Apple, right? We know the story of how they're a massive, massive company that has revolutionized society, just like Google has, just like Amazon has, in, mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. And we know that like Apple wants to put their customers in a box. And we know that like a lot of people, that's a lot that's everyone's sort of critique of apple yeah like oh i can't put a widget on my phone i can't uh, do this on my phone i I can't change the six by seven or four by seven layout i can't do this i can't do that so i'm gonna go to android we know all these things but at the end of the day i think we're still hovering around this question of whether or not like the typical apple user gives a shit about whether or not they're their privacy. Okay, I got to push back against this. I hate the question. I, I, I hate you where do. you're coming from. Why are you putting the onus on the users? Mm. I'm, I, I'm, I don't what I'm implicitly arguing is that this company is governing how people experience yeah. their yeah. products. You're, yeah. you're socializing people yeah. into not thinking that way. Absolutely. If we're going to take the Cambridge Analytica psychological think, manipulation thing seriously, yeah. why can't we be having the same conversation about Apple? Mm-hmm. They have a consistent operating system because they don't want people to think critically. Mm -hmm. yeah. They they know that code is deep, but 
we're encouraged not to think about that depth. Yeah. At least on an Android, I can look at coordinate data in real time if I want to. Yeah. There are tools that exist for that. You can't get them on an Apple device because the App Store's walled garden, so to mm -hmm. speak, mm -hmm. will never allow it. Mm -hmm. They're they're literally creating their own social space and their own space for discourse. This is where I wanted to go with like this whole sort of uh, discussion to, to explore how Apple is actually... Last week, we talked about governmentality and the art of government and all these nice fluffy words, but how Apple is actually governing people to their core and people aren't realizing these things. So I agree. I certainly agree. When I ask that question, I'm not asking it because <laughs> I think people don't care. I'm asking because I'm interested in, in getting at how people are trained, how they're, to borrow from Foucault, how they're disciplined to not give a shit about how their private how their data is being used and i think that's exactly what an iphone does mm -hmm. i think uh, an iphone uh, is is part of a uh, maybe foucault would call it a panopticon uh, is part of a sort of uh, a gaze that disciplines us all into a variety of different behaviors behavior patterns and right. puts and part of the reason is yeah it's not open source like google is but google i don't think is much better Google does it on the internet, like... Well, let's let's be clear here. The, the people that are in the kind of technical capacity, who have the expertise to go and track, like, seemingly insignificant, indiscreet metadata flows in a phone, they still struggle to do this with Android. Mm. It's not easy. Yeah. Even though it's open source, you yeah. still have to deal with encryption sandboxing at the yeah. operating system kernel level, which is impossible to deal with on your own. Yeah. You almost need to recreate the software, the operating system, so that it can be opened up yourself. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your question then. Like, how is Apple doing this? Yeah. How is Apple doing this? Yes, yes, yes. How about those advertisements? Mm. Those advertisements? You're like the biggest Apple fanboy I know. Oh, you can tell me a little bit about what you think from your experience. No, no, of course. So I like to, for the listener, to be completely frank, I have an Apple screen in front of me. I have an, a MacBook at home. I have an iPhone, an Apple watch. I have everything. I have an iPad. I, I don't know if I said that. I have everything that you need to know. And Tommy's taking a picture taking of all my right Apple now. stuff. I got to touch uh, the screen so it gets <laughs> As we speak, that he's going to tweet out um, <laughs> at Thomas N. Cook, because he probably hasn't changed that Twitter handle uh, quite yet. But certainly, like, I have all these Apple products. So are we talking about me? Are we talking, like, am I drinking the Kool-Aid, to, to use a, an overused analogy? Like, am I being disciplined? Yeah. Am I being disciplined when I can, like, say that I'm being disciplined and recognize it? And then I go and purchase it? Well, Foucault was the one who said that reflexive awareness is the first step into mm -hmm. making micro-interventions. Yeah. He's also the, the kind of individual who says that you don't have to throw away every material in your life in order to protest and of learn. Course, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. It's nope. not about all or nothing. No. But yeah, you have been drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, absolutely. Does, I, does I, it taste it, good? There's a, well, you know what? It looks nice. <laughs> I, I can it's be completely, nicely. yeah, it's packaged beautifully and it works. It does its purpose. It does what I need it to do. Um, but but yeah, I think the, it's a broad question of how do we engage in learning about these things and eventually intervening if that is the goal intervening in mm -hmm. this big brother thing um while also like being okay with using this technology and and being okay with playing pokemon go like how do we navigate that both of those sides of that like seesaw that's a good question 
my mind goes to two places with this one. The first is the kind of, you know, early PhD, angry, very resentful kind of attitude that you cultivate when you're trained at a very neo-Marxist institution like York University, right? And what ends up happening is that you kind of go all for nothing, right? Or all, how, what's the saying? All go for, for broke, not. all for not. Yeah, they all mean the same thing. Well, you, you know what I mean. Let's just, anyways. <laughs> you end up saying you have to get rid of all of these technologies if you want to live off the grid. If you really mm. want to critique and fight it, you have mm. to get away from it. The second argument goes uh, like this. It's a little more mature. I'm going to keep those things and I'm going to learn about them by embedding myself in the flows and not being afraid of it. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of Foucauldian thing like yeah. history of sexuality and empowering yourself through reflexive awareness that I was talking about. Yeah. Power is not a chain. It, it flows. And if yeah. you allow it to circulate, you can activate those flows and empower yourself. And so closely related is the third perspective. And this one goes like this. We need mediaries. We need data auditors like David Lee at U of T, like Yuvraj Agarwal, and Jason Hong. Hold on a minute. What? Auditors. Yeah. That Auditors. Just, that's, that sounds like super 1984. Like auditors. What's wrong with auditors? Who controls the auditors? Did you say otters? <laughs> Did I say otters? I don't know. It sounded like it. <laughs> but who controls those people? Who determines... And I, I don't is... know, man. Why are you problematizing my, my vision here? All like... right. All right. Continue. Continue. Thank you. Jeez. Can't ever get a break with this guy. An auditor is somebody that works with the ACLU, the mm. American, Civil, Civil, American Civil Liberties Union, or the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a computer scientist. Works at Google by day and cracks them open by night. A hacktivist. Somebody who is passionate about user-oriented, user-first digital privacy. Lowercase d, lowercase p. We design it for people first. And then we use the position and the knowledge that we have in the institutional resources that allow us to meet and go back to these corporations and say, okay, here's what we've learned. Can we have a discussion now about a middle ground? You can continue to mine metadata if you want to sell me a certain kind of elf that wears a certain length Santa hat during Christmas when I'm playing Fallout Shelter. That's cool. There are no elves in Fallout Shelter. I know that, but it doesn't matter. You know what I'm trying to get at here. You can continue to do that, but, 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 but I want my client or our, your customers to be able to see what data is being picked up from what sensor and how many times that data is interpreted. Mm. The reason being is that the people we're representing are not North Americans. They come from a part of a world where their cell phone activity is disproportionately surveilled by surveillance agencies in the West. And we know through the Snowden revelations, for example, that some of that data can be misinterpreted. We know that corporate algorithms have an incredible interpretative flexibility and go to great lengths to find correlations and data sets that they argue to potential purchasers that is indicative of who that person is and who that person is going to become. That kind of behind-the-doors, closed lab, closed boardroom conversations about who people are 
because you have algorithms running loose on metadata in a phone, that's really upsetting to a lot of people when they hear it for the first mm -hmm. time. Because if you have cancer and you're losing your hair, you don't necessarily want advertisements for wigs showing up on eBay when you're sitting over a dinner table showing people the, the bicycle that you're interested in buying for your trip next week. Yeah. This stuff has everything to do with metadata flows when you play games that you can't see because those companies sell that data. Mm -hmm. I have a, a, a small story that I want to share. A friend of mine was a back-end programmer for a video game company here in London. I won't mention the name of the company or the game, but basically the game had to deal with like taking care of animals. And they made a killing off of people buying virtual fish and virtual like super fish food. And the people that worked inside of this company started identifying their whales, they called them. And the whales were the people who spent the most money. They would look at data patterns from within the smartphone and the application to make their own predictions about when that person was going on vacation. And if they went on vacation to, in one example, Brazil, they would purposely sell or put on sale a fish that had the same colors as the Brazilian flag for the duration of that person's trip. Wow. And then they sell that data to informatics companies. They sell that to security companies. That's a problem. Yeah. People need to see and be informed about yeah. those flows so that they can get some insight for themselves about the kinds of manipulations and interpretations that are being made about them. Because mm -hmm. then that comes back to meet you on your computer screen. It's humbling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I completely agree. And unpacking that would be one of the first steps in, I think, making or or having people understand the implications of their data and their use of their phone. And once people can see those things, then I think on a mass scale, we might see something like a Cambridge Analytica to a huge company like Apple or like Amazon or like Google that really impact more than just our peer groups and our uh, social media presence, but our day-to-day -day lives. Apple seems to be really progressive in the way they talk and their rhetoric about user privacy. Mm -hmm. Like if you go on their privacy policy page right now, it's, yeah. it's, it's designed like a product. It has like bullet points and mm -hmm. has pictures and... And it probably looks very nice. Yeah, why don't you pull it up? And you'll see what I mean. They, they talk about differential privacy there in a way that makes it feel as though they they have some contextual integrity. Yeah. Right? You know, if you're a user that cares about this, we're going to It looks take like the back, you. Uh, you know, when you purchase an iPad and you look at the back or like an iPhone, you look at the back, it looks like beautifully, uh, it just looks like nice print and it's yeah. well formatted. And 80% of that page is dedicated to talking about content data. If you do like a command F and you do a search on there, yeah. try to look up data that they don't consider personal information. I don't know if you can find this quickly, but give it a shot. Well, there's no meta. There's no meta. Of course sure. not. Um, yeah, it's, it's near the personal bottom. information. We limit our uses of data for anti-fraud purposes. We may also use personal information for internal purposes such as auditing the uh, see the audit yeah uh, so at the bottom of the page somewhere yeah. there's there's a, a subheading that says information that we do not consider personal sources of personal personal information wh where they are not collected from you 
That sounds ominous. Anyways, the point I'm making yeah. is that here it is: collection of collection and use of non-personal information. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Read, read. We out also what you collect got data in a form that does not, on its own, permit direct association with any specific individual. We may collect, use, transfer, and disclose non-personal information for any purpose. The following are some examples of non-personal information that we may collect. Repeat that last bit. What the following are? Or yes. Yeah. The following are some examples of non-personal information that we collect and how we may use it. We may collect information such as occupation, language, zip code, area code, unique device device identifier. So, like, that's pretty personal because you that's can connect your unique I- yeah. device yeah. identifier. It's like someone stealing your fingerprint to an individual. Yeah. Uh, referral URL, location, and time zone. With all that information, and we know this with census data. We know that you can almost determine. For particularly people who are um, unique, uh, say, who make a lot of money, Mm -hmm. that using the U.S. census or the Canadian census, you can figure out who that person is based on how much money they make, where they live, all these things. If you have all that information, you can figure out who somebody is. Okay. But anyways, let's move on. We may collect information regarding customer activities on our website, iCloud services, our iTunes, iStore, Mac Store, App Store. Um, Apple TV, iBook Store, um, and from other products and services, this information is aggregated and used to help us provide more useful information to our customers and to understand which parts of our website, products, and services are most interest. Aggregated data is also considered non-personal information for the purposes of this privacy policy. They're doubling down. Oh, because it's aggregated, it's not personal. We may collect and store details of how you use our services, including search queries. They use the term you when it's not personal that wouldn't that doesn't make any sense this information can be used to provide the um to improve the relevancy of uh, results provided by our services except in limited instances um to ensure quality of our services over the internet such information will not be associated associated with your ip address so clearly people care about their ip address they want it with your explicit consent we may collect data about how you use your device and applications in order to help app developers improve their apps. That's often where we ma- we see this manifested. Mm-hmm. When an app requests that we are going to, that they're going to use our data. How many right? times does that happen? Not very often. And if it happens, and I think it happens sometimes like with, within apps. Yeah, um, but it only ever like happens one time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, so you, you have you, to make a decision yeah, before you, you experience the application. Yeah. And if you don't allow it to happen, you don't get to use the application. Yeah. That's very contrived and yeah. it's very manipulative. That whole passage you just read, I right. find extremely manipulative. Yeah, and it's it's also it says non-personal, but like I said, you can if you know if you know somebody's occupation, language, zip code, area code, unique un, un, device identifier, unique New York, unique New York. <laughs> url location and the time zone you know you know who that person is you only need unique device (laughs) identifier right new york it's a unique device identifier that's connected to a cell phone network so all of these things individually as you are saying very astutely congratulations that was really good actually (laughs) all of these things individual you pass you pass my friend we've We've lowered the minus 25 on the friendship scale up to minus 20. That was, that nice. was impressive. I'm going to buy you a beer later. <laughs> um, these things individually seem innocuous, but collectively, it's, as you said, they're doubling down. What is it about aggregates that somehow seems less personal? I want you to just for imagine, just for a second, 
that we put a bunch of sensors in a park. No cameras, just sensors. And say we're doing like a social study. Mm-hmm. And those sensors record micro movements in people's hands when they're sitting eating mm-hmm. or when they're kicking a soccer ball around. And then mm-hmm. we have other sensors that record like heat temperatures, like fluctuations in body heat. And we also have sensors that record um, the orientation of people's heads by looking at their eyes. But we don't identify those people. We're, we don't take their names. We don't, we don't take pictures of their faces. They're just sensors that like can't see the world the way you and I see it. They just see it through data. Yeah. If I take that data and I plug it through an algorithm and that algorithm starts making claims that six out of the 10 people that were there from 3.30 to 4.45 p.m. have bipolar disorder and then we publicize that or we sell that and a product or a phone call comes back to those particular people because the information was de-aggregated mm-hmm. and de-anonymized because those things happen all the time. Do you not think that those people would care about those sensors going in the park in the first place? No, I think they you would. can't blame the people for going to the park. You can't blame them for going into a park mm-hmm. with sensors because somebody said they were doing a social study. Yeah. It's a public space. Yeah. These kind of manipulative contortions happen all the time by people with money that are funded by companies like Microsoft and Google on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And they might claim to be interested in privacy, but they're always also interested in finding new novel ways of making profit. Yeah. People will care if it comes back to them. And maybe, Derek, there's not enough stories about there about harm. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to other kinds of hurdles for the emergence of like collective privacy consciousness. It's not about mm-hmm. technical literacy at all. No. Let's, let's forget that 45 minutes of our talk. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's just focus on for the end here, just for a few minutes. I don't know how much time we have left on, on stories of harm mm-hmm. where people can trace back how their browsing behavior got them in trouble. Do you know of any stories like this or people who have experienced this personally? I know several, none that I would feel comfortable sharing. Uh, on a podcast but well then i won't make you yeah then definitely we've heard stories of these things i've heard personal stories and i've heard stories through third parties of times where data has has been used and and causes harm like you say Uh, and i i think that yeah that's that's very astute to highlight how data can cause harm because that's what's happening here it's it's not personal things that are causing harm. It's data that's actually causing harm that manifests at the, at the interpersonal level. After all, I mean, it, it is measurements. Mm. That's what data is. Mm-hmm. It's a measurement. It's a raw measurement. And it becomes information when it's given some sort of obvious value, right? If we take the, the definition of data seriously, yeah. we can use data to figure out whether or not this beautiful desk was going to fit inside your office. We can use data to figure out the best way to divert traffic congestion on a highway. But we can also use data to determine when a family of of refugees or asylum seekers is approaching the Mexico-U.S. border and intercept them in a very, very violent way. Data harm is also a dimension of data that is under-theorized and under-discussed. I think if we have these mediators out there that sit down with high-risk travelers, disenfranchised populations, people that are on no-fly lists and the terrorism watch list for no reason and can't get off of it in a way that's like 
dramatically and traumatically affecting their lived experience. If they learn a little bit more about how mass metadata collection from their phone in in a casual way, in an unobvious way, gets them in trouble when they travel, people are going to start inquiring more. They're going to want more transparency and accountability from these corporations Mm -hmm. because despite the fact that Apple is sitting there on their privacy policy saying all we care about is content data and we have a strong understanding, quote unquote, of what's not personal information, they don't care. Yeah. They have to and they're going to at some point. Yeah. At some point, this is going to break open. I was firmly of the belief five years ago that the privacy ship has set sail. In a lot of ways, I still believe in that. But I have to say, after exploring what hacktivists are doing and keeping my ear open to more and more stories about people getting caught at the border for things they've never done, mm-hmm. there are there is a growth in the academy and amongst advocacy groups that are arguing specifically now, you guys have to change business as usual because mm-hmm. it's simply not working. Yeah. And I think the first step is bringing that to light. Um, And yeah, after that, public consciousness will flow. I would hope so. What I just want to see is is this this tracking fleshed out. Yeah. I want these corporations to be transparent enough to just show us how data moves in their product. Yeah. That does not come at a cost to them immediately. No. It's going to take resources and time, sure. But if any one of these internet companies cares enough to take digital privacy seriously from a user first perspective especially when those people are disenfranchised they will have no problem opening things up and showing us how the data is created how it moves and where it ends up yeah it'll be in their best interest especially if they want to stay ahead of the privacy game because you don't want to be on that wrong side as we see (laughs) don't be on the wrong side of history (laughs) usa yeah you've got a president that's doing that already and i know that's going to change Maybe when Trump's out of office, this will really happen. Yeah. But I think we need Democrats in office first. First, we need Tommy Cook to finish his amazing project that we talked about at length last week. But on that note, I think it's best that we end this wonderful episode. One of my favorite episodes. I love chatting done. with you. This is always it's a blast, man. It's the best to have you back. Um, it's the best to have you in my office. You're leaving us next week again to Kingston, mm-hmm. but you're going to be around. I will be around. And I'm going to be in Kingston a few times. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll keep the ball rolling or keep the ship going. We are, we're back on track now. We are. And I'm really excited to get more people on the show. We need to get Ben from across the hallway. We need to get... right now. Is he, you think he's in? No, he's. We, I've, I've got to go to a meeting, and he's, he's going to be there. I'll put him in a headlock for me and tell I him will. we're waiting. I will, but on that note, I think we'll end the episode. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, give us a follow at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook, Tommy N. Cook. He's going to change that um, by <laughs> next week. Maybe. Maybe. Um, and as always, keep listening for the noise. Cheers.